Hey everyone, you're listening to Spark, where we amplify the voices of the Middle East startup, tech, and innovation ecosystem. I'm your host, Shireen, and along with our guests, we share with you expert insights on the latest and most relevant news. Our goal is to help you easily digest trending topics and be better equipped to know what to make of it all. Good morning, listeners. Today, we'll be talking all about media in relation to how to monetize it and how to grow your audience. And with me on the show, we have an expert in the field here in the Middle East. I'm in conversation with Richard Fitzgerald, who's the CEO and co-founder of Augustus Media. Augustus Media owns really a bunch of media platforms out here in the region, including Loving Dubai in the UAE and Loving Saudi and Smashy TV in KSA. We discuss a few things in this episode, including news and news platforms in relation to what news is for the public, how they interact and consume news. We also discuss the media industry in the Middle East and we compare it to international markets. And last but not least, we go into details as to how to monetize media and grow your audience using media. This episode really got me thinking about the production and consumption of news in specific. And it seems that a lot of attention has been put on social media companies to control the spread of false news recently, especially when it came to the US election and the widespread impact of COVID-19. Some big tech companies are using machine learning to help you consume news, quote unquote, better, meaning they use machine learning to customize your news feed and thereby they hope that you'd consume more of it. Specifically, if you look at Google's assistance, your news update, which you can download through the Google app or Amazon's Alexa flash briefing, you'll find your feed customized for the type of news you really listen to. As for me, on the other hand, I'm not really on these platforms, so my go-to to receive news is good old long-form journalism in my inbox by way of newsletters. Now, when I'm not thinking of news in the media industry, more recently I've been consumed by the tech developments in the fitness industry. Specifically, the prospects of using tech to better manage your own body's data really fascinates me. I personally use my fitness pal almost daily to track my nutritional data. Now, as you'll come to hear in the episode, I rarely pay for any kind of a subscription, particularly when the product at hand has a freemium model. I do, however, see value in my fitness pal's ad-free paid version. But even still, it was quite surprising to me that Under Armour recently sold it for a loss against its purchase price. Nevertheless, there are other tech companies out there in the fitness industry who are making strides. One company who's recently Accomplish quite a few headlines is Whoop. Their fitness tracking app, uh, you wear it on your wrist. It's via a subscription model. You receive the device for free. And they've actually achieved unicorn status. They've been valued at a billion dollars quite recently. Now with that, I'd like to turn your attention back to the media industry and let's jump straight to today's episode. Richard, thank you very much for making the time to come on Spark. I highly appreciate your time on a Thursday. How's it going? It's good, Shireen. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm pleased to be part of your, your COVID project. Uh, but yeah, so thanks for having me on. Thanks a ton. So let's start off. Perhaps you can tell everyone what form of media is your favorite type of media to both consume as a consumer as well as produce professionally. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. I, I love all forms of media because I work in it. I don't know whether I'm forcing myself to be obsessed or whether I actually like it. So, But um I think there's mediums and there's media uh, and mediums that I really like audiobooks lately. I loved, I've loved Twitter for years and digital media. Yeah, forms of media, anything really, podcasts, audiobooks, 
streaming, music, uh, movies, anything really. Have you seen your consumption preferences change since COVID? I think it could be a few factors. So I answer that professionally as well. But I think I'm loving Dubai. What we found was that news consumption, there was a spike. And I think that reminded us especially in the journalism space that reminded us that there is a value for uh, local news and uh, international news and, and sort of expertise. And I think sometimes when people talk about the shifting of print and journalism and how challenged that industry is, people kind of try and defend it by saying that, that there is a sort of a public service in, in local news and information. And we see that a lot of nations and ministries and departments have national broadcasts daily during this time. And I think that kind of reminded us that, hang on a second, you know, we thought we were just peasing in the feed and we thought we were just publishing and, we, you know, we were listening to sort of the death of journalism and that no one will pay for this anymore. And, and then we were kind of reminded that, hang on a second, it's not just like branded content or it's not just high quality journalism. There is a need, uh, and I say public service, just like water is the public service, but you can still charge for it. So, but I don't think all of it is healthy. I think there's too much of it. And I strongly believe that. I think it's like anything. It's like, you know, if you have an illness and you Google it too much, if you kind of, if you obsess over some news, that's not, it can kind of take energy away from it. So I was conscious of that as well, uh, personally. And, you know, I mentioned audio books a second ago and, a few minutes ago, and I was saying that I, I seem to be consuming a lot of them lately, and maybe it's because of COVID, but also audiobook sort of thing consumption is there to stay because I, I, I like it. But yeah, and going back to the kind of COVID related consumption, we, we wrote an article on the Augustus website about local news consumption and how it shifted to Instagram and in the feeds. Uh, and I think millennials as well. I think there's a huge change there. I don't know if you saw, if you kind of noticed that as well. You know what I find really funny? Often when I interact with a government entity, the conversation ends with something along the lines of stay tuned. They always say, follow us on Instagram. We post our news on Instagram. And I say, what? Newsletter? At least email me. You know, I don't want to rely on social media to get my news from you. I wonder if it's a little bit cultural as well. Do you see the reliance on the millennials consuming broadcast news and information on social media to be something of a regional Middle Eastern phenomenon? Or do people you know back home consume it the same? I try and keep in touch with trends from elsewhere. And what I think is like a lot of these platforms are global. And I think some of these trends we're talking about I would suspect are global because I read about them in millennial trends in, in, in US media. So I would say that some of these things are. And I do think just talking about Instagram and Instagram never had a retweet button. It never had a share button. So, you know, articles were shared on Facebook, Newswear, and also on Twitter. They were more media friendly platforms. And it's only in the last sort of year or so that the share to stories allowed, I think, more non-engaging type posts to appear in the feed because you wouldn't post something if it doesn't get likes, which is news. Uh, but now that it can get shared, so whenever, so Love in Dubai and a lot of others, we, we post Carousel now with the top 10 stories and they all get shared, not like, not comment on, shared. And the huge virality around, you know, these, Instagram and social media is huge amongst uh, millennials. And, and I think the TikTok and Triller and any of these new platforms, which are big here as well, 
the reason they're taking the attention, people's time on the phone is because they're very quick to serve people up things that they like. And that's, that's the thing about these platforms. Like TikTok definitely don't see themselves as one type of content. They think of it more as a behavior. And TikTok is born out of ByteDance, which is their aggregator type platforms like, um, like Nabit in, in the region. And it's all learning what people are consuming and serving it up to them. So from a news point of view, I don't think people have really copped on enough or quick enough or reacted to this sort of news opportunity on Instagram per se. I think there's huge opportunity there. This region has always liked, in my view, the or what I've experienced, the, the numbers and the visual type of social media, the incentives around social platforms in terms of vanity metrics and things like that. Yeah, but, you know, as, as I mentioned, when I came here first, it was very early days for us. Like, we were setting up social for a lot of different entities. They used to compare the numbers and things like that. And I think quickly learned that sort of visual part. I mean, I consume an awful lot, a huge amount of text. In what format? How do you, how do you receive the text? iPad, tablet, not really print. I, I, I read, I was going to say cover to cover, but I read a full weekend newspaper on a tablet. I really miss an article. And, and then I subscribe to long form text articles and I really enjoy them. Like I think the journalism behind subscriptions, behind paywalls are really, really good journalism. And someone sent me an article, five years old article about a snooker player uh, from, uh, I think the New Yorker or the Atlantic or one of those, maybe Vanity Fair, one of those. But afterwards I was like, wow, it took me 25 minutes to read it. And I thought, I thought, wow, that was really enjoyable. So it, it depends on the, on the kind of um, quality journalism. And, and this morning I listened to the Daily, the, the New York Times podcast about this region. They, they cover the recent political uh, story, which I, w- I recommend checking out. But I thought, wow, like in the past, I would expect to have watched it as a documentary or after the news, that sort of big piece. And this morning I watched something in Arabic and Al Arabiya, which was, I don't know if you saw it, but it was an AR, a sort of augmented reality, retelling the story of the assassination of uh, Rafiq Kariri in 2006. It's incredibly done. Like really depends on the, yeah, it really depends. I think journalism can live in many different, storytelling can live in many different mediums, basically. How was the AR integrated? Was it that you as a consumer were given a device to put on you to interact with the media, you know, in an AR format? Or was it special effects? It was it's on YouTube, it's on Twitter, uh, in terms of the viewer. The way it was shot was the journalist was actually superimposed onto the streets of Beirut with a kind of a virtual world of the retelling of the event. So it was, the event was reenacted. The presenter, he was, he was probably presenting in front of a teleprompter, and it was scripted and in a green room, but it was just all coming together in a kind of a mixed reality type of way. And it was just really interesting uh, form of storytelling. Very interesting. Was it a regionally produced piece of content or did someone internationally do this? It looked like it was just kind of a news piece in line with the news cycle this week. And it was probably something that was worked on. The information was probably there and it was probably something that took a little bit longer. Yeah, probably a week to put together or so. I could be wrong. But yeah, it looks it was probably done in the, in the newsroom uh, in, in the region. Yeah. 
Very interesting. The reason I asked is because I was wondering if production of media regionally was as sophisticated, let's say, for lack of a better word, as production in the States, you know, where they have access to all the Hollywood tools over there. And I'm even more surprised they're using it in the news context as opposed to, let's say, a TV show or a movie. You know, I remember I used to try and describe, I, I worked in Dublin and then moved in London. And I never really articulated this well, but I always tried to describe the difference in expertise in a big city and a less big city. And I tried to put it down to investment, money, um, number of people working in an industry. Therefore, people can be more specialized. But another way of looking at it is market size and GDP and things like that and emerging market. These throwaway comments of saying that we're 10 years behind or X or X, it's very hard to quantify those things. But when you look at it in terms of GDP, and I know other people will not like these metrics either, but you look at the GDP of the region and some of these countries, there's $600 billion on a good year, maybe not a COVID year, uh, spent globally on, on advertising and media and different, different things onto that as well. Depends on marketplace and things like that. But roughly that's the metric that people looked at. 200 billion of that is spent in the US of uh, 320 or 30 or so million people. This region which if you take the 22, 23 Arabic-speaking countries, has the same roughly population. The media spends, again, lots of people debate over these numbers, but talking three, four, five billion dollars. Facebook people say it's closer to five, but so three, four billion dollars. If you look at that, that's not close. Like that's a massive difference. And you can talk, you can talk about universities and skill set and people and talent. But these numbers, this money creates jobs and this produces work. So I don't think that this region is behind at all in terms of skill set, ability, production. You know, in one-off cases like that, it compares. Uh, you know, some of the, the shows are as good, but there isn't as much of it because that's in advertising. That's the same in production, the same gaps elsewhere. And the reason is, is because... The U.S. has been a leading global economy for many years. And the Middle East is part of or can be part of emerging markets. So if you think of the BRIC nations and then you wonder, will this region emerge? And I think what we need to think about in terms of production, and is everyone going to have a smartphone? Are we all going to have 5G as fast? Iraq has just launched 4G, for example. Uh, you know, and, and so those type of things... Uh, and I think that's the point. It's like some markets, some economies don't emerge, you know, um, of the BRIC nations, uh, China has emerged clearly because they're in the news a lot, but Brazil didn't in the same way and neither did Russia. Right. So they might, they might still, but I think, I think that's important. That's the way I look at it in terms of, uh, media, you know, will these things happen here? Will it be, will we be, you know, yeah, will, will these things happen here? Will we be consuming at the same rate as everyone else? Will the investments happen here? Uh, will the jobs happen in the industry here? Um, and I, I, I'm quite bullish optimistic about the region here in terms of media. And more so now than maybe a year ago or 18 months ago, I think there was a real worry of uh, streaming services about 18 months ago, about two years ago. No one seemed to be stepping up. And, um, and that changed. Uh, you know, NBC did something really, really good with, with Shad Plus and invested a lot. Um, OSN turned... What is it that they built? 
Yeah, they, well, the, 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 their streaming platform, they, had, they built it, but they kind of really decided to do more with it. So uh, they built most of it in Jordan, but they really decided to, that they wanted it to work and they wanted to invest in the content and the subscription element to it. And the same with OSN, um, you know, after they kind of moved away from Weibo, they still licensed their tech, but um, Stars Play uh, are important in this as well. Um, and, you know, and then obviously the, the kind of Amazon Prime and, and also Netflix. And then if you look at music, it was kind of Angami for a long time. And then and quickly, all of a sudden, overnight, um, Spotify jumped in, uh, Deezer in, in partnership with Rotana, like all these things kind of jumped in really quickly. And now we're looking at what's happening in the podcast space. And um, I just had a chat with uh, the founder of Kitab Saudi this morning and, you know, what's happening in the audible book space. Storytel have acquired them, moved into the region. All of a sudden they've got three offices here and it's kind of like, wow, like all these things are happening. Um, there's, a, there's a good audio platform, uh, Podio, a startup in, in, in Beirut, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, production companies like Spark or <laughs> podcast companies as well. And you see so much innovation and creativity around this space. And I think that, that sort of ecosystem, that sort of thing is important. You can see the talents there. It needs to be backed. It needs different things to happen uh, in terms of advertising, in terms of users and, and people paying, like direct-to-consumer things. Um, but the, but I don't see any reason why not. I think um, you have to innovate. You have to innovate in commercial models. Like I speak to a lot of publishers here, and you know some of them will say that I don't think anyone's going to subscribe for stuff in this region. And I completely disagree. You know, if, you, if media has value, it's up to you to extract that value and kind of provide that that quality to people. Obviously, as a content provider, I agree with everything you're saying. <laughs> now, how do we convince non-content providers, uh, or rather, how in what direction can we advise them? Let's say we have a founder listening to this who's just building up a brand and is confused how to reach customers in a high-impact, low-cost way. Too often, what people do now to reach people is go straight into lower funnel and performance marketing and prices and swipe up and buy. And I think. You know, when the, when you ask people on the street, have you heard of this app, have you heard of this brand? They might know it because uh, that sort of awareness piece wasn't done. And from a marketing point of view, that doesn't mean you have to pay for it. It doesn't mean that you have to go on billboards or TV or make or boost a video or whatever. It doesn't mean you have to do that. But I think you have to be aware of it from a brand building point of view. There are other ways of doing it. Like on Love in Dubai, we do media partnerships. So we put flags and TVCs in physical locations. I, d- I definitely don't think content's for everyone. Just like from a media company point of view, what we're trying to do, we're not doing events. We're not doing products. Uh, we're not selling e-commerce things. We're not making clothes. We're not making love and hats or things like that. Digital media is complex enough. You know, just on the ad tech side, like there's so many providers that's moving so fast with, uh, you know, connected TV technology. There's so much stuff there. I was going to say, I find ad tech so confusing. I don't know if it's maybe I'm not, I'm just not familiar with it, but every time I try to educate myself, I get lost with all the different things you can measure. And all these knowledge based providers always say, Oh, but it's never accurate. It's never accurate. It's guesswork. For for a founder to know how to measure their investment in media, where do you recommend they learn about it all? 
uh, hire a good marketer. Yeah, <laughs> marketer. Yeah, you know, it just depends. Like, it really depends on how much time they want to invest in it. Like, do do you hire a CMO? It depends on your company. I see a lot of companies who raise money and they spend a lot on marketing and they look at the numbers and then the numbers are showing them a conversion funnel, but then other people focus on the product and it grows organically and they don't spend a penny on marketing. Fundamentally, I believe that you need to do branding and you need to do performance marketing. And a lot of that should be on digital. I don't ignore the ad tech side, but some of it goes way over my head. The the huge trends in marketing uh, in terms of where money is going and where to reach people is programmatic video. And everyone's fighting for that. You know, Facebook and Google have most of the money that's already online, but the money that isn't online is the TV money. And the TV money is going to go on connected TV. And Brightcove, one of these software uh, companies, released a report uh, today on the Q2 numbers. And it said that what for the Middle East, it's a global report, for the Middle East, 1% of households across the Middle East is, have a, has a connected TV, uh, which is so, so small. Like It's like saying in 2007 that 1% has a smartphone. Okay, connected TV isn't going to dominate in the way that iPhone or the smartphone does. But in the US, 90, 100 million households have a subscription service on TV. Saudi, I think, is 5% uh, connected smart TVs. But So that's going to happen. It depends on who helps it, enables it here, and where it ends up. Does that money, you know, will we see sort of um, advertising as well as subscription, which I believe we will, you know, on Netflix and other places? I think it's inevitable. Um, and I don't think the users are going to be too perturbed by it because we've always had uh, advertising and a ticket in the past. Uh, and, and then look at podcasts, you know, like, Almost all podcast creators at the moment and audio creators aren't being rewarded for the time that the users spend on the platform. And that's going to change. Like we've seen Spotify uh, do huge investments in this space, 100 million for Joe Rogan, Michelle Obama. Even Kim Kardashian has been awarded a podcast contract by them. <laughs> really? Yeah, there you go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You, you can be next year. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah, as we say here. Um, I have a question for you, Richard. Given that you've built brands in Dubai and KSA through Loving Dubai and Loving Saudi, do you see there to be fundamental differences in the approach to media in both countries? In what respects? In consumption? In both consumption as well as production. From a production point of view, quite similar. Like in social media, it became very Arabic, has to be Arabic in in terms of dialect on social and things like that. But from a social media point of view, uh, production, not massively different. I think there's a lot of talent in Saudi. From our point of view, we we see it as a loving brand, a local news and lifestyle platform. And we entered uh, three years ago and we weren't sure. We were a foreign media company. We weren't sure how to do it. Uh, so we did it in the same love and red style uh, and out of Bahrain in English. And I spoke to some of the other media guys there at the time, the guys from U-Turn and Telfaz, and they said, well, we're doing our bit, our thing, but actually there's an underserved, foreign educated, millions of people who speak English. So that might be a decent place to start. So I was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. Let's do that. Uh, but we're never going to be known on the street in Saudi. So we switched it. We went and we switched. We went completely the other way. I was at a Miss Media Forum uh, thing, and there was three thousand young 
Saudi national media graduates. And I was like, wow, okay, this is just, I, I was just blown away. I was just like, okay, wow, they all want to work. Uh, they're all talented, great universities, um, all into social media, all on Snapchat. Um, so so we, just, we just did that. And, and then we launched Smashy, which is an Arabic business streaming platform. Uh, we've got a show called Mean Kesser Social Media on Snapchat, mainly in Saudi, uh, that gets 40 million views. Um, but, but yeah, and, and this was kind of so, just by working with the local talent there um, and really kind of really making our company about that. But the way that we're adapting to the market is by making it local, making it the same production type for a local audience. Having worked in both countries, actually including Bahrain, um, what does not work in the Gulf? When, when producing content, let's say, what do you find consumers to not be receptive to? People will say like the long form stuff. Like if I wrote a 6,000 words uh, piece uh, interview and I put it behind a paywall, would I get the traction that some of these pay only new media companies in the US like Axios or Information or some of these platforms, would I get the engagement? And the newsletters now, this substack trend and... Oh, I love newsletters. You know, just last week I told someone I love emails. I love receiving newsletters because I do it on my own terms. It's condensed. Uh, and they all thought I was crazy. They were like, really? You read emails? <laughs> which, which ones should you listen to or read? So I read uh, digests of international companies like TechCrunch, Morning Brew, New York Times. So I don't have the time, I find, to read news daily. So what I'll do is once a week, I'll grab a coffee in a coffee shop, sit for a couple of hours and brush up on the week's news. And if it's in my inbox, I know it's there. I can tick it closed once the email opens. You can go through it at once, yeah. Exactly. It may just be a personal preference, but I love getting emails and newsletters. <laughs> yeah, I, but I would, do, would you pay for one? Do you subscribe to them? No. If I took, if I took Morning Brew away from you tomorrow or ask you to pay $1 for the year, would you pay $1 for the year? I'd pay a dollar for the year, yeah. Okay. This is what the New York Times did. Uh, I, I pay seven dirhams a month for the New York Times because it's the first year. This is how they grew from 600,000 to 5 million subscribers in five or six years because they hired the best journalists and then they just realized the value of it and they, and they believed in the value and they found a way to put it in front of someone. That would be for the app, right? To have access to the New York Times app. That's for the website. Yeah, it's for the app. It's funny you say that because I did subscribe initially and I thought I don't use this enough. So I unsubscribed. Okay, well, that's good. They, they need, they'll learn from that and they'll try and get you the next time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a minority though, but I do read their newsletters. Well, I don't know if they call them newsletters, but they have some journalists that send news blasts under the headlines, New York Times, and that I read. But what I find annoying is often the like link articles and they'll take me to a website with a paywall. Let's <laughs> just close that. But often all, all you need is a headline, really. Yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. And I think a lot of news can be free and can be ad supported. I don't think it, I'm just interested if people, if companies really believe in the value, they will opt in. It's a price point, but you're not just saying, here's some free stuff. You're kind of going, I'm going to use this money to hire better journalists to write that sort of longer form piece that can go behind a paywall. In the US, people are setting up their own, like, like this podcast, but they're setting up their own Substack, which is a newsletter platform that allows you to get minimum of $5 a month 
uh, and it's a huge trend. Uh, it's to empower riders to have their own mini businesses and they help them with legal and they help them with all this stuff. Very similar to what you just described. Um, one of my favorite podcasts that is a health focused show, it's called The Drive by Peter Atia, has a membership model where if you listen to the free um, subscription, he says at the start of every episode, I believe that we do provide value. If you agree, please pay, you know, this minimal subscription amount. And in return, we'll give you exclusive show notes. And I respect that. Firstly, because it's a health podcast. So I think it would be a little bit of a conflict of interest if you are promoting one thing over another in respect to people's health. But also it kind of drives the creator to make sure that they produce the best content to get people to say, yeah, I agree. Therefore, let me pay a little extra for more premium benefits. So the same model you just explained, I think can be applied to various forms of media. And do you pay for it? And are you going to do that at the start of this podcast? So my brother pays for it and I mooch off his membership. (laughs) Well, that's okay. As long as someone in the household is paying for it. Yeah. Would, you, would you look at that for a spark? Would you do something like that? Do you think people would? Once you know, I know it's relatively new, but... Uh, I, I absolutely do believe in the model, but I think that the model will work once you have a big user base. You need to have enough content that people like to then be able to provide additional content that's differentiated. So perhaps it's something I can look into after years of, after having worked on this platform for a year or more. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Richard, I'm mindful of time. I've gone over. I enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes on your podcast listening platform of choice. And whilst you're there, leave a review and rate our show so that other aspiring innovators can find it. To find a summary of our discussion today and links to our guests, access our show notes by visiting our website, sparkwithshireen.com. If you don't want to miss out on future announcements, subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at sparkwithshireen. Before you go, I'd like to let you know that we love hearing from our listeners. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, including guest or topic recommendations, drop us a message through our website or social platforms. If you didn't have a pen or paper handy to write all this down, don't worry. We've gone ahead and added all these links in the episode description. All you have to do is scroll down and click when you have a moment. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.